We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we record this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg peoples. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land, and that not all settlers were brought here by choice. We believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation, compassion, and respect. This is the Intersection Hub podcast, where we have candid conversations for social good. My name is Kimberly McKenzie. And my name is Paul Nazareth. We believe in the power of community and that together we can continuously learn, support, challenge, and improve ourselves, our organizations, and our sector. Join us in the Hub. We look forward to getting to know you. create social infrastructure that enables us to bounce forward to a more equitable, intentional, meaningful, and community-centered process. And what does that sentence even mean? Well, it's actually quite simple. What it means is that the expertise we are often looking for lies within the communities nonprofits exist to serve. And when that happens, when a community comes together to design the space and services they need, systemic issues like poverty, homelessness, homelessness, and hunger can finally be solved. If this is the kind of conversation that gets you fired up, we have a treat for you today. Paul and I are thrilled to welcome Anne Gloger into the hub. Anne is the founding director at the East Scarborough Storefront and principal at the Centre for Connected Communities. Since 2000, that's over 20 years, Anne has worked at the East Scarborough Storefront, pioneering collaborative solutions to complex issues in an inner serving community. Out of this work has emerged a new approach to community development, the Connected Community Approach. CCA is a values asset-based community development framework that supports the use of creative processes to support grassroots groups, social services agencies, artists, architects, urban planners, environmentalists, academics, municipalities, and others to co-create initiatives that foster real meaningful change in their communities. In her role as principal, Anne provides leadership to a dynamic, diverse, and creative team of community development professionals. And we are so excited to welcome Anne into the hub today. There's a lot of talk at the moment about community-centered philanthropy, but here's the thing. It isn't a new concept. Anne has been putting it into practice for over 20 years, and today she is here to tell us how she has not only done it, but is now also scaling it for greater impact. And welcome to the hub. Hey there, Kimberly. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Paul? I'm so excited to have this conversation. From the day that I heard our colleagues start to unpack this, I've been desperate to learn more. So I can't wait to have our colleague, Ann Gloger, join us. Ann, are you there? I am. Lovely to be here with the two of you. You can just turn your camera back on. Hey, there we go. Hey, nice to see you. Um, Paul, how do you know Ann? 
You know, I've, I've known the work, uh, Anne's work with the East Scarborough storefront for many years, and partially because it was a really unique case study that so many different people use. It was very weird in that you had people using the storefront as a case study for operations, for governance, for finance, for partnership. Uh, and then Anne and I sat on a panel together at the Toronto Foundation, uh, where Anne said one of the most profound things I heard in my career. And it was hilarious because but then my mind exploded in front of like 200 people. As a fundraiser, when Anne said we started funding uh, organizations and then we went to programs and then we went to projects, you know, it reminded me of something uh, Al Pacino said in The Devil's Advocate. Uh, and I think Al was one of the best portrayals of the devil ever. He said, you know, uh, that guy's got you jumping from one foot to another. He said, look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, but don't swallow. And while you're jumping from one foot to another, he's laughing his ass off. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, this is the funding relationship of my life. And, you know, the danger of fundraising and the power that we are letting go in community. And then you started to unpack connected communities. And I remember just like, I've got to learn more about this. So we were gonna do it over coffee and now we'll do it with the world. Wonderful. Okay, yes. so um, Anne, can you just start by telling us a little bit about how you got into this work? So I was reflecting on that the other day and you know, um, it sort of has three parallel threads to it. Uh, my career started in early childhood education. And to this day, I say I learned everything I learned about working with people in early childhood education school. Um, because children respond extremely well to a respectful environment, to respecting their autonomy and uh, opportunity to choose and select for themselves within a supportive and uh, structured environment. And I've sort of taken that with me everywhere I go. Um, and then I, um, in my world with early childhood education, I began running after school programs, which couldn't be located in the school. And so I had to facilitate um, uh, sort of uh, partnerships between faith communities, recreational uh, organizations, schools and parents. And that really brought me to the idea of a community as social infrastructure and all these disparate and siloed parts of, um, of the community that when they work together, they can create something really powerful. And then the final piece was I, I actually took um, a, a program at University of Waterloo called Social Development Studies, which united psychology, sociology, and social work under one discipline. And it was there that I got introduced to the idea of um, systems, family systems theory. Uh -huh. And I always say about systems, once you start seeing them, you can't stop seeing them. Right. And so when you when you sort of take that respect for individual autonomy and growth, yeah. couple it with the power of collaboration and think about it in terms of systems change, that's the stuff that gets me super excited. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for introducing us, Paul, because you <laughs> are speaking straight to, you know, all that is this right here. Um, and, and I have often said, 
the system, the, the, if, if fundraising is not working, the system is broken. And we need to go up and look at that system. And there are a lot of conversations uh, happening in the sector, as you probably know, about community-centered fundraising versus donor-centered fundraising, power dynamics. And of course, the whole world is looking at all of our systems and how broken they really are. And so there's this tiny little organization in Scarborough that seems <laughs> to have figured this all out. Can you tell us just a little bit about the East Scarborough storefront and the model there? Sure. So it was really created by the community for the community. And I very rarely tell this story without talking about the fact that it was a collaboration of 40 different groups and organizations who set out to, but really identified uh, geographic poverty in our city way before like the formal research came out, set out to look at mechanisms to, um, to address it. And um, they, so they came, began looking at service delivery as a, as a way in. There were, in East Scarborough, there were very, very few services and increasing needs really rapidly. Refugees were being settled there without any supports. It was becoming a crisis. And um, so they hired me in uh, the year 2000 with a $5,000 grant. And I always talk about this because it really was created by the community for the community. It wasn't created, here's the money, here's the frame, now go do it. It was really kind of build it incrementally. And so the model that began um, out with the service delivery hub was really everything that I just talked about because it was the autonomy of each individual organization to be experts in their own field. It was the collaboration of how do we bring them together in, in a one-stop shop kind of uh, way for the people of East Scarborough. Mm -hmm. And it was the intentional facilitation of social infrastructure to make that happen. That was my job. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the service hub started in 2001 and um, has been incredibly impactful with 35 organizations um, constantly thriving for the last 20 years. But it became so much more in about 2008. And it was really, you know, the listening to the community is fundamental to this very community centered um, approach where I learned that, you know, thinking about communities and strengthening communities as a function of service delivery is really a narrow frame to be thinking about it. And so they identified at that time in a big, facilitated visioning process, they identified service delivery being approximately a third of what we needed, mm -hmm. um, economic opportunity being another third, and then social development, the capacity for residents to influence the environment, the community in which they live. So Wait, out of I don't want you to skip past that part. The last part the capacity for residents to be able to influence the environment in which they live is really key. What did that look like? Well, it's fundamental really to the connected community approach and it's looked multitude of different ways. And so with Storefriend, it is really core. It's, it's a core outcome of our work 
that residents are influencing the local systems. Um, and that could mean, you know, municipal, that could mean organizational, that could mean developing their own systems within the community. Like it can be from the micro to the macro. We're not, it's not just engaging in the formal democratic system. Hmm. Um, so over the years, it has looked like, well, a community design initiative is always a great example. Um, so early on in our evolution, um, we lost the space that we were operating in. We simultaneously actually lost a significant amount of funding from the federal government. It was the big crisis um, that the community responded to through a, a march in Scarborough, like a picket march, which I don't know how well you know Scarborough, but like that's not a thing, right? And so that was uh, a big political stance that the community took. But what it resulted in was the city um, allocating an old police station to us uh, for new space. And you know it was a big monumental moment, but it was a police station. And you know, we heard stories like, "I'm not going there. I've got terrible memories of that." And we still had the jail cells. Um, yeah, all, and so we decided we obviously needed to transform this into community space. And so what we did was we worked with um, uh, urban planners and designers and architects not to redesign the storefront, but to provide local youth with the information and knowledge that they needed to make decisions about what this new space was going to look like. We started like with a, alone. Sorry. We started with like a, 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 a short-term project and it lasted for five years and they kept designing and redesigning all kinds of things. Um, and so they designed a resource center. They decided what we call the Eco Food Hub Kitchen. They designed a outdoor sports court and a, what we call a Skyos Whale, which I can tell you that story if you want. It's an iconic shade water filtration structure that doubles as a stage and bleacher seating. It's, yeah, it's a wild thing that they designed. <laughs> um, so it took a lot longer. It was much more expensive. But in the long run, it gave the community the ownership over the space that it looks like it looks because the community decided that this is what it was going to look like. So that's a really good example of um, resident influence that is intentionally fostered as a successful outcome of the project. Mm -hmm. I'm interested. Sorry, Paul. I mean, we're leaving you in the dust here. I Do you have... Okay. You know, my big question this. is, is yeah. how and why did that evolve to connected communities? Because ah, yes. that's the thing is you've got a great case study here and then you took it up and out. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. That's very yeah. good. And, and yes. So tell us what connected communities is now. Yeah. Okay. So we realized in, you know, 2013-ish that we were really on to something. We were doing things differently. The storefront uh, was what we later coined the, a community backbone organization borrowed from Collective Impact. Um, our role as a community organization was not primarily service delivery. It was and is to facilitate systems 
at the community level. So that is grassroots leadership, that is organizations from outside the community being able to effectively integrate into the community, organizations in the community being able to effectively work together, institutions, govern, governments, all looking at this as a whole ecosystem. And our job is to facilitate that, mm -hmm. right? Our job is a coordinator, is a convener, a facilitator, communicator. And we realized, you know, that we were really on onto something. And um, we did uh, kind of put backwards from where how I would recommend most people do it. But we we had a facilitated process to design a theory of change. Mm -hmm. Who do we think we are? Why do we think we? Uh, what do we think we're changing? Um, how do we think what we're doing is actually changing anything? How do we know? And what principles guide us? Mm -hmm. And we had a wonderful facilitator from Openly who um, facilitated oh. this process. Okay. Um, and we developed, and it turns out that we couldn't develop our theory of change without actually developing the model. Because the model became the connected community approach. Mm -hmm. And so once we started codifying that, you know, we were looking at it in the, con in the space of economic development, in the space of youth leadership, in the space of civic engagement. So Storefront was doing, using the same model in all these different spaces. Right. And as I loved your introduction, Paul, because that's why, that's why Storefront is a case study for all these different things, because the connected community approach is not, is not issue specific. It is community specific. Indeed. And you know, one of the, one of your weird superpowers is again, you talked about doing things backwards. I've never been anybody who starts almost every sentence with, we didn't do this alone. <laughs> you know, so, so one wonderful thank you for the shout out to openly and hello to lisa watson and the team again they constantly you constantly leave breadcrumbs for others this is how we did it this is why we did it and let's, so let's we got the openly shout out i'd love to hear more about your your relationship with tides now make way and because that i feel was a very strong facilitation in this and for our listeners again you constantly share you're the anti-proprietary you constantly put it on paper and share it. So connectedcommunities.ca, there uh, our listeners can find the theory of change document, which we've also updated, which is awesome, uh, and the neighborhood trust. Again, the opposite of top down, how we do this from the grassroots up. And again, connected communities, as I read the theory of change, is also one of the only models that talks about all of what, you know, the government's in consultation right now, but working with charities, nonprofits, mutual aid, community-led. And I've almost never seen any other model that works like that. Again, that's why Ontario Nonprofit Network loves to show it so much, because when they say shared platforms, other people say not possible. And you've proven it time and time again. And I'd love to hear more about how with connected communities, you're going to take that up and out. No, no, no pressure. <laughs> All right, there's a lot packed into that. Um, so I'll, I'll do the shared platform uh, make way piece. Um, Storefront chose, even when we could, we chose not to incorporate, not to become a charity, not to become standalone. Um, and the impetus for that was a number of things. One was the collaborative nature. We never wanted to get um, so focused on us as an entity keeping, you know, I mean, obviously we have to focus on keeping the doors open, but it was about us 
the broader collective of people participating. And that's very difficult to do in our current structures because you have to have boards who have legal liability. Um, it's hard for um, it's hard for grassroots participants. It's hard for for um, organizations to to other nonprofits, charities to sit there. Um, one of the other impetuses was I'm a community developer and I had no interest in becoming an administrator. Huh. And, um, you know, when I talk to EDs in the not-for-profit charitable sector, you know, they're passionate about what they what they got into the business for and 80 to 90 percent of their work has become administrative. Um, and so that didn't happen to us because we joined, we, we started out actually as a project of one of our partners, um, East Scarborough Boys and Girls Club. And so that was the time when Tides Canada, which was actually then called Sage Centre, wow. um, was uh, beginning to operate in Ontario. And what Sage Centre, later Tides Canada, now make way, is an, is an intentional collective governance structure. So we're one of uh, 60 different organizations across the country that has a shared governance structure and shared back office. So while it's not that we never do administration because we're accountable for our own budgets, we're accountable to get our own funding, we are accountable um, for our own, um, any augmented policies beyond, you know, sort of the compliance level. So, you know, amount of vacation people get, things like that. So we, you know, we, we're, we do have autonomy within a broader structure that holds us accountable to CRA regulations and and, and, and um, transparency and all of it and transparency and we are on the platform because what we do is, um, actually furthers the make way their charitable objects mm -hmm. and so it is we are them we are legally part of the uh, make way or broader organization and they delegate certain amount of autonomy to the to the project so we were able to really focus on the stuff that mattered in community mm -hmm. and make sure that all our t's are crossed our i's are dotted we we were accountable um, and we had uh, appropriate financial mechanisms and robust policies and and all that was being done by the people who were expert in that. Yeah. You know, you know let's take just a quick moment because let me say something incredibly impolite uh, that nobody ever says when they're talking about make way and other things. And it really pisses me off because people kind of slag make ways model because they're always talking about how there's many cheaper models. They take a lot off the top. And it, it really pisses me off because people don't understand what they bring to the table and that what they're talking about is not a, a, not a, um, not a fee for service model. It is a shared service model. And again, they bring the governance and they facilitate the ability of autonomy, but with accountability. Could you share a bit more about that? Because I think that is a, just a like, superpower like no one else has of what makes them so special. So Storefront has a steering committee made up of people who are passionate about the community and care about the community. That steering committee, along with me, uh, well, was me as director, we'll talk a little bit about my evolution, um, and the management team, are delegated the responsibility for leading the Storefront vision. So from a compliance point of view, 
we are um, we are accountable to make way, but recognizing that the expertise about the community rests in the community. And so the expertise on compliance, governance, financial, legal structures rests with make way. So it's kind of, it's like a, it's a, it's a two way thing. They learn tons about community work from us. We learn tons about uh, compliance and governance from them, but we work in ways that bring the best of our each set of expertise to create a unified whole. I want to pick this up where, because I thought it was fascinating, um, the concept of a community backbone organization. And if you're from early childhood education, you may know Barbara Coloroso <laughs> talks about, and this was a pillar when I was raising my kids, she talked about um, jellyfish where the kids get to run the house and brick wall where you, they get no flexibility, nothing, you're very rigid. And we worked really hard to be a backbone family. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, this idea of a community backbone organization. Yeah, so um, I was raised on Children the Challenge, which is what the, what um, Barbara Coloroso based a lot of her work on. So um, you know, definitely uh, resonate with the with the analogy. Um, yeah, so the the social the difference between social services and community development, I think, is really helpful to talk about here. Because we often talk about um, community work as social service delivery. Mm -hmm. And social service delivery asks, what's wrong? How can we fix it? Mm -hmm. It is about the professional helping the individual cope with the system as it is. Yeah. Um, it is about um, often, not completely, but about more transactional relationships. Come in, get what you need, yeah. go out, live your life. Community development asks, what is strong in this community and how can we build on it? Mm -hmm. It is about uh, working collectively to improve the environment in which you live. Mm -hmm. And it's about long-term relationships. So when you look at those two pieces, they're both needed in a community. Mm -hmm. And so a community backbone organization is able to say there's room for everything that is a positive way forward in this community. Mm -hmm. So how do you make social services really thrive in doing what they're doing? Mm -hmm. And how do you help grassroots leaders really thrive in what they're doing? And then how do you look at what municipalities and funders and institutions are trying to do in community? And how do you position it so that those things actually support what's going on in the ground on the ground rather than come in with the next new idea which is what often happens i'm so in love with you right now <laughs> if you want to operationalize that love again remember connectedcommunities.ca yeah, yeah 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 the yeah. document is there yeah. how do you replicate this neighborhood yeah. plus shared platforms yes I, and we'll put a link to that um, white paper if that's okay uh, in, the, in the notes for people to read it. So what next? So there's this wonderful mecca of community-centered services in Scarborough, Ontario. Um, and, and I love just to, before we get to the connected communities, I love the idea and it's, it bears repeating that 
you go way upstream, not just delivering sandwiches or providing a bed for a night, but dealing with some of the systemic issues in the community that cause poverty and homelessness and hunger, which is what we absolutely need to be doing more of. So what is Connected Communities and how can we get involved? Like what's happening next? How do we all do this? Okay, so the, uh, the, the Connected Community approach is everything I've just, just described that came out of the storefront. Yeah. Then we realized in 2016, like the implications here are, as you just pointed out, huge. And so we decided very intentionally to spin off a second organization also on the MakeWay platform, um, which is the Center for Con Connected Communities, which is really how do you use this premise mm -hmm. at scale? Mm -hmm with a community-centered focus. Mm -hmm. So what has ended up happening with the first three years, uh, we actually um, spun off in 2018, the first three years we've been um, in really wild spaces. It's been fantastic. We've been working with urban planning. Mm. I didn't know that urban planners talk about all the same things community development people talk about. Yeah. But they talk about it with the solution being the physical infrastructure and community development organizations talk about it being the social infrastructure. And quite honestly, it's both. And so we've been working a lot in the urban planning space. How do you reimagine urban planning to be community centered, not extractive consultation, but really building on what's already good and existing in community? We're in the space of workforce development fairly heavily, and that is um, in marginalized communities across the, certainly across Toronto and in other urban centers, um, there's millions of dollars being invested in the form of anchor organizations, institutions like universities, colleges, hospitals, as well as infrastructure projects. We're building things. So how do you take a community-centered approach so that that um, investment translates into local jobs. Mm. We've been working, we, we were really instrumental in the City of Toronto's um, uh, resilience strategy, the climate resilience strategy. Um, we worked with a whole bunch of grassroots leaders to help inform what that should look like and have since been doing um, research with um, some fabulous folks at the Dalalana School of Public Health around community-centered resilience. So how do you use this adaptive, facilitative, collective model to actually prepare for the shocks that we all know are coming? So we talk about preparing for, responding to, recovering from, and bouncing forward after. Yeah. So that, that's some research that's coming out after fairly what? shortly. After what? Bouncing. After a major shock event, so like a pandemic. For yeah. You know, as a first step, you know, we are facilitating processes or about to hopefully facilitate processes, assuming we're not in a fourth wave. Um, but uh, to really help communities and all the players attached to communities, so grassroots leaders, organizations, institutions, researchers, um, reflect on what just happened. Mm -hmm. Really take that, that approach to look at our community. You know, what, what did we lose? What did we gain? Yeah. This marvelous piece of uh, research with the Dalana School of Public Health around um, 
the social infrastructure that during the pandemic either helped or hindered grassroots leaders to step up and part and and facilitate um, recovery processes in oh. their community. Yeah. And um, you know, mostly what we found is that the social infrastructure pretty much disappeared in most communities, not yeah. all. Um, and you know, how do we how do we think about what people did? Um, how it can be supported and how do we create social infrastructure that helps us to bounce forward to a more equitable and intentional and meaningful community-centered process. Yeah. So we're, we're doing some of that work um, with communities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I really think we need to pivot how we, oh, I should have said pivot. Oh, <laughs> that's that. okay. We, need, we really need to adjust how we think about charity, yeah. how we think about community, and how we think about the role and relationship of institutions, governments, and philanthropy in relation to community. If we can truly center community not to be standalone not to download the responsibility to take the community as the the focal point Uh, people live in communities yes so and people are should be influencing the communities in which they live so how do you build the social infrastructure that is just as you said kimberly is not a jellyfish here community just go and do whatever and you know without any kind of structure or the brick wall where the funder the municipality says this is how it works exactly but but that facilitated an intentional process to bring people together to put things in place one of the key things um you know that really 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 uh, was missing during the pandemic was how communication flows who's paying attention in the community yeah. How communication flows across community, from community to institutions uh, enacting things, and from the formalized systems into community and across. And, uh, you know, in East Scarborough, we have some really, really fabulous examples, but how that was what the priority was as soon as the pandemic hit. Um, yeah. But it's not social infrastructure that we build. Yeah. It is not social infrastructure that we build. But that is exactly what we need to be rebuilding right now. Um, and uh, I, I could talk to you all day about this, but we're not able to. This I love all of this stuff. I, I want to show you. I have a mind map in front of me. See that? Oh, that looks a little like mind connected map. community approach. <laughs> I know. Like this is <laughs> so... Um, that's the intersection right there. But uh, this is a lot of work. This is There's a lot of heavy lifting that needs to be done to inspire divergent points of view and people who don't necessarily see themselves connected, but they are connected. And just as we move towards closing this conversation, I would really love to know how you've done it. And I know you're gonna say, oh, it wasn't me. It was, you know, <laughs> we did it together, but everybody needs a change agent to propel them forward. And, and that can be a very heavy weight to carry. Um, Paul, do you have a follow-up? Yeah. Only again, but, but an add on in that, you know, and we were sitting next to each other at the Toronto foundation discussion event with a lot of young professionals, well-meaning people, tech industry folks who are always recreating the world. 
And you talked about your 30 years of experience. And I warned Kimberly, when you talk to Anne, you're going to be like, this person's a Highlander. She's lived like three different lifetimes. Uh, and how do you stay the course? How do you stay the course to commit to systems, to commit to community when the world around you is always chasing the latest shiny thing? Yeah. So I'm going to go back to openly for a minute um, and the way they talk about um, authentic leadership. And they talk about being grounded in purpose, not just the leader, but the organization. So everybody grounded in the purpose so that you know, everybody's coming back to it. It's not, it's not about me always saying, no, 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 you have to remember what the purpose is. Right. It's about when people come mm -hmm. into a meeting, yeah, they know what the purpose is. And a lot of those materials you talked about, Paul, that we created, we created as much for internal as external consumption, because if you can't explain what it is that you're trying to achieve to the people yeah. who work there, yeah. Um, and then the, uh, if you know your purpose and you know, the principles that guide you, and we spend a lot of time figuring out principles, not the value statement that sits on the wall, but the principles that say, how do you do your work? Yeah. So an example of that would be, we have a principle that is we, um, uh, we put people and process before product, right? So we always start with. Who are we talking about? How is, are their skills and assets and aspirations being drawn into this project? Yeah. The process, how do we facilitate a really meaningful process so everybody engaged is along there? And then out of that is what the, the product, the outcome is going to be, you know, which of course with funding is, is a challenging place to be because, um, that uh, we work in what we call emergence, um, which I coined a few years ago as saying where momentum meets opportunity. And so constantly paying attention to what's going on in the ground, where's the momentum and then scanning the horizon for opportunities, be that funding or research or, you know, talking on a podcast or whatever. Emergence is when momentum, where momentum meets opportunity. Yes. And again, Openly has done a great job. They published this post through an Ontario nonprofit uh, network called the Network of Nonprofits. And for someone for me who really believes in personal networking and organizational connection, that was groundbreaking. Um, so, so there's that aspect of it. They're super grounded in purpose, and really, you know, I don't have to. I don't have to wrench myself back to purpose. You know, we, we've collectively, and yes, I've provided leadership so that we are, we always start with why. Nothing start, nothing happens without starting with why. Yeah. Um, and I also think that the other reason that I'm able to um, stay so connected to it, um, Malcolm Gladwell in uh, Out, Outliers mm -hmm. talks about 10,000 hours. Big believer. It takes practice. It takes practice to work in this way, this way that is not about drive everything to us or me, mm -hmm. but this way into paying attention. Mm -hmm. 
where are the strengths? How do you pull them together? And it honestly, it becomes second nature the more practice you get. Um, just like I also said, um, you can't stop seeing systems once you've seen them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can't stop working in the connected community approach. I couldn't if I tried because every opportunity I am now able to identify the layers that go this way, the scales, the, the grassroots to the, to the government, and also the range of players involved in each sector. So um, I don't feel like it's, it's hard. I don't feel like for me, it, I'm, I'm having to force myself to stay the course. I just, it, it has become as natural as breathing. Well, you say uh, practice, I say commitment, Dan, and, and thank yeah. you for- We have to have the commitment to, to, in order to practice. Yes. I, love, I love what you said. It's become as natural as breathing. And, and uh, that just leads me to the next piece because of course the intersection was relaunched through my own little epiphany about trying to find a joyful, meaningful life again and very much putting purpose before profit. So I get all of that. I do think when you are working in the social good sector and you are very passionate about waking up every morning to do your work, there is a risk. We can do another whole podcast on burnout, but how do you take care of yourself? Because you need to put your own oxygen tank on so that you can continue to serve in this way. Yeah, so there's a couple answers there. Um, Most recently, hiring a new director for Storefront, so I'm no longer in charge of Storefront, has been a big thing. A (laughs) shout out to Sahar Vermazyari, who has taken on the the reins of Storefront, which is fantastic. Um, But I think, you know, and, and, and more than that is I have developed a way of working where I am able to provide leadership through, um, providing the frame through which we are approaching whatever it is that we're talking about, that you know we're grounded in purpose, that the principles drive us, and that I am then able to say, okay, so now that you have all this for whatever it is that we're designing, yeah. go out and co-create it. And so the um, being surrounded by wonderful people and not feeling that it is all about me and that I have to be involved in everything. Right. Um, and a good example there is when the pandemic hit, a lot of EDs found themselves being the filter through which everything had to go because everything was now different. And so nobody knew how to behave. The ED had to decide how everybody was going to behave. And so huge, as I'm sure you know, uh, ED burnout during COVID. Sure. Um, because we had this... Uh, the connected community approach, and we had a coordinator of knowledge mobilization, and we had a- Wait, wait, say that again. A coordinator of knowledge mobilization. Yes, that's one of the core jobs at Storefront. So we knew that knowledge mobilization was going to be critical during the pandemic. We didn't have to invent something. Mm -hmm. It's just repurpose everything that we're doing already but put a COVID lens on it, you know, so we've been able to do some, you know, we've, we've done sort of more um, 
convening of material, being a trusted source, making sure that people have community relevant information, health information, stuff like that. But we've also support, uh, paid grassroots leaders contracts to um, develop uh, videos and podcasts to talk about their experience in the in the pandemic and with vaccines and with um, you know not getting the right information and all that kind of stuff to be shared within the neighborhood. So I didn't actually have to frame any of that. I didn't need to you know uh, lead a process so that this could happen. I I framed a discussion that said what do we now need to do? Yeah, and knowledge mobilization came to the for, and then it was taken on by the staff. So um, I no longer feel, I mean, early days, I did a lot more hands-on, but I no longer feel like I need to be involved in, in creating the actual thing because we have experts that we hire to do that. That's awesome. I love it. I just love it. Now it is a final question. Um, what can the intersection community do to advance this kind of work or, or what kind of call to action or help you be successful? What, what can the community contribute here? Well, it's paradigm shift, right? I mean, that's, that's fundamentally what we're talking about. Yeah. And the more people who are taking a community centered approach in their thinking and in their talking, the more we the easier it will it will be i mean i'm going back to malcolm gladwell again i don't know why i'm quoting him so much today but the tipping point yeah right, there's, right. there there's momentum building around this way of working absolutely and when, when we talk about investing in community are we talking about investing in the social infrastructure that are going to allow communities to thrive or are we talking about donating to vulnerable people, right? And as soon as they become vulnerable people and you hear it all over the news all the time, right? The Canada Revenue Agency report. <laughs> it, because as soon as they're vulnerable people, they're not agents of their own change. Right. And so, you know, we have to think about communities and particularly communities that have been marginalized and racialized and driven away from decision-making structures. Uh, we need to reposition them as the core places where change can happen and the core drivers change themselves. And we need to build the structures around it. And, um, you know, what we can, there's all kinds of things that everybody can do from every sector um, but it starts with the paradigm shift. Let me be explicit for our listeners too, because again, you're, you're being wonderful and humble and, but connectedcommunities.ca, I would say for our folks who want to live this, go and read the theory of change that's there. I think that will help a lot of people. You've articulated yeah. it there. It's the roadmap to do it. And again, because you've also shared a separate neighborhood model, it answers the pushback. Well, we couldn't do that here. Mm. Done no right. reason why not. Absolutely. And again, you've articulated how and what's different and how we plug in different things to make it replicatable. That's the future. And again, we keep coming back to community. We keep coming back to this model. Mm -hmm. Just can't thank you enough for, again, sharing it, leaving those breadcrumbs for the rest of us and everything. Oh, I'm sorry, I've got a garbage truck outside my door that is just really loud. Um, 
as well as the uh, resources that we offer on the website. Center for Connected Communities also offers workshops and courses. For anybody who wants to do this, we are more than happy to make something, uh, develop a, a workshop or a course that is uh, specific to your context because everything, context matters. Con being context specific is what makes Connected Communities approach work. Beautiful. Well, your neighbor's your neighbor, even if they don't have a house, right? Yeah, you betcha. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here today and for being so patient with some of our little technical challenges, but I am just such a fan now. And thank you, Paul, for bringing Anne into the hub because it's just been a brilliant, brilliant conversation. Emergence is where momentum meets opportunity. I love that. You heard it here, folks. The key to this work is to ground yourself and your organization in purpose. Be driven by principles that you share together and surround yourself with wonderful people. And then let it go. Let's shift the paradigm. The world needs more people who are taking a community-centered approach to their thinking. And without a doubt, it is time to invest in the infrastructures that allow those communities to thrive. So let's stop taking care of vulnerable people and start building connected communities that help those people in those communities thrive. Whew, that's a lot of work, but I'm so excited. Remember to check the show notes for the links we mentioned and think about how you can contribute to a paradigm shift so that connected communities can model a new way forward for all of us. And thank you so much for sharing your energy, your enthusiasm, and your work with us. Folks, remember, please like, subscribe, review, and share this podcast so that more people get a chance to hear it. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much for making time with us a priority in your busy day.